0: This morning, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word, which is found in Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 22, and chapter 29, verses 38 through 46, which can be found on page 65 of the Pew Bible. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out you shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put the ark, you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the two cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces to one another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat." From between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. One one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other, other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb a tenth measure of fine flour, mingled with a fourth of a hin of beaten oil, and a fourth of a hin of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight." And shall offer it with a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests." I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This is the word of the Lord. I invite
1: you to find your way back to Exodus 25, and let's pray as we open the Lord's word together. Gracious Father, thank you that you are a God who speaks. And you intend in gathering your people together to speak to us. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be a people who hear, a people who are eager uh, to listen carefully to your word, eager to love you in response, to obey and follow you with the strength that you supply. And so be with us this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last weekend, I had the privilege of chaperoning my son's sixth grade class to Acadia National Park in northern Maine. Um, I see the awe over there. You grew up on Mount Desert Island. It is, it is one of the most beautiful places in New England, if not the entire country, um, and even... You know the drive through Maine itself is pretty, but as you get near the coastline, you know you you hear people in the van. All of a sudden, whatever they were talking about a few minutes ago, they're not talking about it anymore. They're staring out the window at this incredible beauty that they're surrounded with. People are pulling out their cameras and their phones, and and it's just breathtaking. And uh, you know whether it's the drive on on Cadillac Mountain or the boat ride along the coast. It is just overwhelmingly beautiful. But what's interesting that I noticed uh, this last weekend is that the longer you're there, the more often you drive the same roads every day, the less amazed you become at what you see. All of a sudden, you know, instead of staring out the window, Students are now ignoring the scenery and they're back focused on whatever is happening inside the van. You know, I've you stop taking pictures of everything that you see because I've already seen that landscape a few times this morning or what was extraordinary thirty six hours ago feels rather ordinary and common. Kind of no big deal. We've all heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt, right? That is true. It is true. When something becomes a regular part of our lives, something amazing even, it begins to feel common and and so often loses its specialness to us. It's no big deal. Uh, But... To treat something that's truly extraordinary as common or ordinary is not merely to become neutral to that thing. It's actually to profane it, to treat it with contempt. Familiarity doesn't just breed apathy, it breeds contempt. It is insulting to be bored or unimpressed with that which is truly amazing. And when you do that with the beauty of God's creation, that's sad. You're missing out. When you do that with the presence of God among his people, that's dangerous. But that's a risk that we run every time we gather as the people of God in Jesus Christ. When God's people gather God is with them. He is here by His Spirit right now in the midst of His people. His presence among us. Not just in this place here, but wherever Christians gather and share life together in Christ, God is with us in a special way. We are His temple today. But because that's a regular part of the Christian life, it's easy to become unimpressed by the fact that the Holy God of the universe shows up when we meet to treat his presence as common, as ordinary, no big deal. Which is not to be neutral, that is actually to profane it. It is to profane it. Our passage this morning seeks to cure us of that apathy and that contempt in a big way. Seven chapters of instructions that emphasize the specialness and uniqueness of God's desire to dwell with his people, that he might speak to us and sanctify us and satisfy us with his presence. And the importance of that section is uh, evident immediately when you consider the context of it. We, we look at chapters 25 to 31. And, uh, uh, all of these details about curtains and poles and lampstands and tables and, 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 you know, unless you're like an interior designer or something, uh, you know, we're thinking, what relevance does any of this have to our lives? This is the kind of stuff that makes people hit the eject button on their plan to read the, through the Bible in a year. I mean, you, you you've persevered through the law in chapters 21 through 24 and then you're hit with, Not seven chapters of this, and and when you combine that with the, the construction narrative later, it, you know, so what is this doing in here? Why are we told all of these incredible details? Well, if you look at the end of chapter 24, the context of this passage, take a look at that and see where this information comes from. 24 verse 15. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud. And went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Chapter 25. The Lord said to Moses. What we have in these seven chapters before us. Is what God spoke to Moses on the mountain in his presence. For those 40 days. This is such a unique event in the whole story of scripture. That. That a man would come into God's presence and God would speak to him like that. I cannot imagine God engaging in small talk when he does that. And so what he says here matters in a big way. This is where he's going to give Moses the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. Those commandments he spoke audibly to Israel earlier. But what dominates the conversation on that mountain in the presence and glory of God, what he spends his entire time talking to Moses about, is his desire to dwell with his people and the necessary conditions for that to happen. In fact, you take the instruction narrative of chapters 25 to 31 And combine that with the construction narratives, when they actually build all the things that they're receiving the plans for here, which is chapters 35 to 40. When you put those two sections together, this takes up a full third of the book of Exodus. God's desire to dwell with his people is central, not just to the message of this book, but central to his plan of salvation As he says in chapter 29, verse 46, they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. They were rescued so that he could dwell among them. He didn't just save his people from a bad situation. He saved them because he wants to be with them. Which doesn't mean God is now going to confine confine his presence to this small little structure. Uh, God remains omnipresent. He is everywhere. He is simply choosing to make himself present in a special way with his people, a unique way, which is completely amazing. The holy God of the universe wants to be with us. So what does that look like for ancient Israel? That's what all of these instructions are about, the necessary conditions for a holy God to dwell with his redeemed people. So first, he needs a special place, a special place, something sacred, unique, set apart from ordinary life. There is nothing common about God dwelling with his people, and so The place where he dwells needs to be set apart for that special purpose. It's not allowed for any ordinary use. And it also needs to be able to serve its purpose. The God of the universe is going to dwell there. And so it needs to be able to accommodate and reflect his glory and beauty and be equipped with all of the necessary uh, furniture and implements to facilitate that ongoing presence. And it needs to be movable. God has appeared you know, to Moses twice now on Mount Sinai, the burning bush, and now is in his presence uh, up on the mountain. But Israel's not going to stay at Sinai. God promised them the land uh, that he swore to give to Abraham and his descendants. They are going to be a people on the move. And so this special place needs to be portable to go with them. And so God instructs Moses to build a tabernacle. It's a special tent with all the necessary furniture and instruments for his ongoing presence among his people. He says in chapter 25, verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And the details for what to make are what follows in, in chapters 25 through 27 and then 30 through 31. And we're not going to read through all of that. Travis didn't read the entire section earlier. Um, but I do want to give you a sense of what he's instructing. And the illustrations from the ESV Study Bible are really helpful for helping us imagine what is, uh, what is it he is telling his people to make. And so the first object he talks about, is the ark. This is an an ornate box. This is what Indiana Jones was trying to find in that first movie. So, within this ark, Moses is to place the tablets of the testimony that he's going to receive from God on the mountain, the law of God, the, the testimony of the stipulations of Israel's covenant with God are going to go inside that box, and on top of it, they're to place a cover with... Two golden cherubim, heavenly creatures, uh, wings outspread, forming a kind of throne for God. He says, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will com- give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So God makes his special presence known of all of the things involved in the tabernacle. This is the centerpiece. This is the holiest object. This is where God is going to take up his throne on top of the ark with the law at his feet in the box. But notice what the lid is called. It's translated uh, mercy seat or atonement cover in most of our Bibles. Because the reality is, with the, the law of God at his feet, under his throne, uh, we've already seen, and we will see again and again, Israel's unable to keep that law. They are unable to keep that law. And so how can a holy God take up residence in the midst of a rebellious people? Over top of the law is the place of mercy, the mercy seat, this cover that is used once a year on the Day of Atonement to to atone for the sins of Israel. And so God wants to dwell with His people. He takes up His throne and at the same time offers mercy. That's the first object at the heart of the tabernacle. The second object is described as the table for the bread of the presence. And that bread most likely being a picture of our dependence on God. It's not something that, you know, the priests are feeding God because he gets hungry. It's a picture of our dependence upon him. Uh, one, uh, Twelve loaves uh, of bread, one for each of the tribes. And then that's followed by the golden lampstand, which is placed inside the tabernacle, shining light on the place where God is present. And then there are instructions for the tabernacle itself in chapter 26, All of the curtains, the the covering, the frames, the bars, and most importantly, the veil that separates one part of the tabernacle from the rest of it. Setting off what's called the most holy place or the holy of holies. That's where the ark is going to be placed. And that is a spot nobody is allowed into. Only the high priest and only once a year is he able to go in there to make atonement for the sins of the people. This is so sacred, no one can go in. Then comes the bronze altar, which goes outside the tabernacle. That's where the sacrifices are going to be offered. Um, and then they are to instruct a, or construct a court around the tabernacle. This whole space is sacred. And then in chapter 30, we find instructions for the altar of the incense, uh, which goes inside the tabernacle opposite of the table with the bread, outside the holy of Holies. And then outside of the, of the tabernacle, again, uh, near the altar, is the bronze basin for washing for the priests. And uh, then each of these elements are designed to be movable. They're all designed with rings and poles so that they can be carried around. Again, because the tabernacle must be portable as Israel makes their way through the wilderness toward Canaan. And a lot more could be said about the instruments, the objects, the, the furniture, uh, the design and the details. Uh, for instance, the tabernacle seems to be patterned after God's design for creation. There's some echoes of Genesis 1 you see here. And then later when you get to First Kings and the temple, those come become even clearer. Um, things like cherubim guarding God's special presence. That's straight out of the garden. Uh, the tree shaped lampstand, the precious stones that that uh, uh, are are part of the priest 's garments and and that makes sense. The fact that the tabernacle kind of is an echo of Eden makes sense when you remember that Eden really was the first temple, the first place where God dwelled with his people in a special way, and they served him. Um, we looked at that last December. Um, But if there's one impression we're left with from these instructions, if there's one thing that we just cannot walk away without realizing, it is that God's presence with his people is anything but ordinary, is anything but common. It is special. It is holy. It is not to be taken lightly or for granted. So special that all of these instructions and all of these implements are necessary for it to happen. God is that holy. But there's a second necessary component for God to dwell with his redeemed people. He needs not just a special place. He also needs a special priesthood, a special priesthood, because we're not in Eden anymore. Uh, Israel is stained by sin and therefore unfit for God's holy presence. So they need advocates, intermediaries, people to come before them in God to to mediate for them, uh, a special office of servant who are there to facilitate God's ongoing presence among his people, among this unholy people, no less. And so God points Moses' brother Aaron and his sons as the priests who will serve in that temple. And that's what you read about in chapters 28 and 29. Chapter 28 focuses on the clothing that the priest must wear. Clothing fit for the office and function of serving God. They are elaborate. They're ornate. They're beautiful. He says they're for glory and for beauty. They're not supposed to be plain because the God these priests are serving is not plain. He's glorious and beautiful. And so their garments reflect that. And woven into this clothing are reminders of their special office and function. On their shoulders and on this breast piece, they bear the twelve names of the tribes of Israel. Graven on stones placed on them. So that whenever they go into the tabernacle, they are bearing, they're representing the people of God to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord, as he puts it. Verse 30, And in the breastpiece of judgment you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart. And when he goes in before the Lord, thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. The priests represent the people bringing their guilt to God, seeking forgiveness and atonement. Similarly, they wear a headpiece, almost kind of a a crown um, with a turban on top. And on that headpiece, there's an inscription that says, holy to the Lord. This is not a common function or a common office. It's sacred. And it shall be this, this this headpiece shall be on Aaron's forehead and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts it shall be regularly on his forehead that they, the gifts, may be acceptable before the Lord. So as an intermediary, the priest is able to take Israel's offerings stained by sin, unfit for God, and make them holy and acceptable to God through the offerings that they they make. But to be able to do that, the priests themselves have to be set apart and sanctified because they're part of sinful Israel too. They're just as sinful and unclean as anyone else. And so chapter 29 describes this ritual for consecrating and ordaining them for service in the tabernacle. An offering has to be made for their sin, a burnt offering and two sin offerings to remove their guilt. And then the blood of that sin offering is placed on the earlobe and the thumb and the toe, which is a picture of sanctifying these priests to be able to hear from God and speak and serve God wherever they go. And so for God to dwell amidst an unholy people, he needs a special place, he needs a special priesthood. We don't actually read much about the offerings those priests are to, to make here. If you get to Leviticus, you learn all about them, Um but what we're given here at the end of chapter 29, uh, uh, what we're given here in chapter 29 and throughout this whole section focuses mostly on not what we need to do in God's presence, but what it takes for him to be able to be with us. That's the whole point of chapters 25 to 31. And, and it is lengthy and it is detailed and it feels redundant for us today. But why go to all of that detail? Why include it in the scriptures that are not just for Israel, but all God's people in all times and places? What is this doing here? Why such extraordinary detail about God's dwelling place? Because there's nothing ordinary about a holy God dwelling amidst a sinful people. This is something unique and special. God chooses a place and a special priesthood because his presence has a special purpose for his people. There's a reason for all of this, and, and there's a reason uh, that we are at risk of missing out on all of that when we take for granted or or allow god's presence among his people to become normal and common and ordinary and that reason we see at the end of chapter 29 the special purpose of god's presence it's that the god who dwells with his people speaks to them sanctifies them and satisfies them with his presence that's why he wants to be with us so look again at the end of chapter 29 We'll start in verse 42 where the priests are, are to make regular burnt offerings throughout their generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord in the presence of the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. He wants to speak. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting in the altar. Aaron also and his sons, I will consecrate, set them apart for holy service, to serve as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. So God God wants to dwell with his people in order to speak to us, to sanctify us, and to satisfy us with his presence. And we see those three things here. He, the God who dwells with us speaks. Verse 42, he speaks. He didn't just save Israel from Egypt, again, to, to get them out of a tight spot. He wants to dwell with them, and he wants to dwell with them in order to make himself known, to reveal himself to them, to speak to them. This is essential if they're going to be God's covenant people. Everything Bruce talked about last week in this covenant relationship that Israel's going to have with God. How can that happen if God first doesn't tell you who he is? And second, if he doesn't tell you how to live as his covenant people. If God is not a God who speaks, we don't know how to have a relationship with him. And so he wants to dwell with them in order to speak. Second, the God who dwells with us sanctifies us. He sets us apart from service. You know, what makes the tabernacle and all of the instruments special are not the the strength of acacia wood. You know, you compare that to the other woods and it's just the best. It's not the gold that gilds all of the objects. It's not the thread count in, in the linen and the garments and so on. That's not what makes any of this special. The presence of God is what makes all of that special. His glory sanctifies the tabernacle. It's his presence. His glory consecrates the altar where he's worshipped and the priests who serve him. And so he dwells with us to sanctify us, to set us apart for holy service to him. And then finally, the God who dwells with us also satisfies us with his presence. He satisfies them such that because God is with them, they truly have all that they need. Think about that. Uh, Look at the relational language of, of chapter 29, 45 to 46 again. I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. Listen to that promise. Think about what that means. If the one true God of the universe promises to be your God, do you really need to go looking elsewhere? You know, Or do you really, is there anything that anyone else can do to you that this God can't protect you from? Is there anything you need that he can't supply for you? Is there anything in this world that can anchor us or comfort us or stir our hearts or gladden our hearts more than being in the presence of God? His, his presence satisfies us such that we, we realize that when we have Him and are with Him, we have everything that we need. This is what Asaph came to realize uh, in Psalm 73. Asaph was a, a worship leader for God, and, and he knew that God was good to Israel. But when he looked out on the world, he saw it was the wicked who were having all of the fun. And here he was, keeping his hands clean, suffering, and all those who had nothing to do with God seemed to get away with it and have the good life. And he was ready to conclude that he had been wasting his time serving god until he went into the temple into god's presence and there he discerned the end of the wicked and finally came to the conclusion psalm 73 verse 25 whom have i in heaven but you and there's nothing on earth that i desire besides you My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For me, it is good to be near God. That's the best thing, His presence. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. And so the Lord dwells with His people. He gives all of these detailed instructions because He wants to dwell with His people in order to speak to them to sanctify them and to satisfy them with his presence such that they have all they need in him. Now, of course, that looks different for us today than it does for ancient Israel. Um, Because Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's covenant, God does not attach his special presence today to a building, to a place, but instead to a person. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is with us by the Holy Spirit. And again, we looked at this last December when we looked at kind of the special presence of God among his people throughout Scripture. And we saw how Jesus is both the true temple and the great high priest. He is the Word who became flesh and tabernacled among us, as John puts it in chapter 1 the one who fulfills everything that we're reading about in Exodus so completely that we no longer need a priesthood or a temple. Jesus is all of that. Uh, in fact, he makes his church into a new temple. Not, not the building, but the people. And all of us become priests to God. So wherever and whenever God's people gather in Christ's name, he is with us in a special Way. And so, so God's presence doesn't look uh, the same for us as it did for ancient Israel. But the God who dwells with us still speaks to us, still sanctifies us, and still wants to satisfy us with his presence. And that is no less amazing today than it was for ancient Israel that God would want to have us in his presence. It's no less amazing today, but it is just as easy, if not easier, to take that special presence for granted. We don't have a big, ornate, gilded building or structure that reminds us of the majesty of God or that protects us from getting too close to his presence we have a building but not because the bible tells us to have a building so so our 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 worship in god's presence looks different and and we are able to there's there's nothing here in this building that that protects us from getting too close to his presence like you had the veil in fact that veil that covered the holy of holies was torn in two when christ died on the cross so we actually have more access to the special presence of God today than Israel did in Exodus 25. As the author of Hebrews puts it, he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. We are invited into God's presence through Christ. Let us draw near with a true heart and in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That is amazing. That that is is mind-blowing that we have that kind of access to the God of the universe. He wants to dwell with us like that. And that he has done everything necessary to make it possible. It's not anything we figured out. We didn't clean up our lives, put them back together, you know, put on our best face so that we can show up in God's presence. He did everything through Christ, our great high priest, who lived his perfect life on our behalf as our priest and gave his life on the cross as that Passover lamb. And so we have this kind of access, a closeness that ancient Israel could have never imagined. But proximity, like familiarity, can easily breed contempt. Enjoying that kind of access to God, day after day, week after week, puts it at risk of becoming common, ordinary, unimpressive, no big deal. Another word for that is profane. When we neglect the holiness and the specialness of God's presence among us, we're not just neutral to that presence. We profane it. And that's not just sad. That's dangerous. And so we need to ask ourselves, have we become too comfortable handling holy things? Is God no big deal anymore? Do we treat His presence casually? Or even worse, like play? The presence of God among His people is a treasure. It's a treasure in every sense of that term. It is the most special thing, and it's something that our hearts ought to desire and pursue more than anything else. The presence of God in His people is a treasure. And we treasure that presence when we listen to Him. He's the God who's with us in order to speak. When we serve Him faithfully, He sanctifies us. And when we rest in Him fully, He satisfies us with His presence. Through Jesus, our great high priest. And so so God Still speaks to the people who dwell, he dwells with today. That's why we prioritize the preaching of the word whenever we gather together as a congregation. The God who is with us still speaks, and every time this book is open, his voice can be heard. When you're invited into someone's house for dinner, you don't spend your time staring at your phone when they're talking to you. At least you're not supposed to. How much more when God invites us into his presence in order to speak to us. We treasure that presence by listening carefully to everything he has to say. The God who dwells with his people still sanctifies us today. He sets us apart for service. Hebrews 10, 14 puts it. For by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So so whatever our sin, whatever our shortcomings, uh, whatever our story, Jesus not only forgives that sin when we trust in him, he not only takes our offerings, our, our words and our works, and cleanses them by his blood to make them acceptable to God, he cleanses us, our hearts and our lives, in order to be able to serve God as his holy servants. He sets us apart for servants for service. So you don't, you don't change the lawnmower oil in your grandma's good dishes. You don't put the the special guest towels in the bathroom on the toilet paper roll. You don't do it. And so our lives, our bodies, in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, are not to be used for sinful purposes, but for sacred ones, for serving God in everything we do. We have been set apart for service. We've been bought with a price we belong to God. And so we treasure God's presence by repenting of sin and serving Him in joyful obedience by relying on His Holy Spirit. His grace is what teaches us to say no to sin and yes to holiness. And His Spirit who lives in us is what makes that possible. We have been set apart For service to God. And the God who dwells with his people. Not only speaks. Not only sanctifies. He still satisfies us. With his presence today. Whom have I in heaven but you. And there's nothing on earth. That I desire. Besides you. Is there anything better. In all creation. Than being near God. Anything that can compare. This is where the story of Scripture is headed. The unmediated presence of God. That's the end game. That's the goal of the entire story. That's what was lost in the garden. That's what's regained finally in the new creation. And and listen to the echoes of Exodus 29 in Revelation 21 john's vision of this new creation when christ returns revelation 21 3 and i heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the dwelling place of god is with man he will dwell with them and they will be his people and god himself will be with them as their god I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. This is our hope. This is where the story's going. It's not what God can give us or do for us that is our reward. It is God himself that is our reward. His unmediated presence forever. And this is true for us in part and in advance Through Jesus. Because God is with us now by the Holy Spirit. And because we will be with him in eternity. What can this world offer that's better than that? What can this world do to us that God can't protect us from? What can it give us? That we don't already have or will not one day have eternally and much better in Christ. Is there anything that you need that he can't supply? Is there anything in this world that can anchor us in the storm or comfort us or stir us or gladden our hearts more than being with God? In his presence. The God who dwells with his people. Speaks to us. Sanctifies us. And satisfies us. In his presence. And nothing. Nothing can compare. Or take that away. Not for those who belong to Jesus. That. Is our hope. Let's pray. Gracious Father, may we never lose our awe at the fact that you are with us. May it never become so normal and and plain to us that when we speak, you hear us. May our hearts be filled with joy and wonder over the God who wants to be with us and who has done everything necessary to make that happen through christ lord we praise you we thank you that you are a god who is with us and we pray that your unending unmediated presence the hope of heaven that that would stir our hearts to persevere and serve you in the meantime as, as servants who have been set apart, not for common purposes, Lord, not for base or immoral uses, but for holy service to you. We praise you for that, and we pray for the strength of your spirit to walk with you who are with us. In Jesus' name, amen.